Pretty much every week or every other week, there are sermon notes that really are a short synopsis of the message, kind of give you a foundation to what we're sharing. That song that we just sang couldn't be more appropriate to what we're going to share about in the middle and near the end of this message this morning. Not sure what happened on Phone Tree yesterday. Uh, I know it went out, but you didn't hear it. Or how many heard me? Nobody. All right. Not sure why. We'll find out hopefully this week and get it corrected. But I, I got the number. I make it come to my cell phone so I know it went out. And then nothing was there. And I knew I was there when I recorded it. Sometimes you just don't know whether you're really there or not, right? And I knew I was there when I recorded it, or at least I thought that was me sitting there. But it didn't go out well, so we'll try to get that corrected. But it does give you the context of what we're sharing and what to read ahead of time. So uh, we're in Acts 11. And 15 this morning, not 13, but 11 and 15 this morning. One of the things that fascinate me about the Word of God is its relevancy. And I, I almost every Sunday say that or end up praying that way at the end. But it really is fascinating how this book that has been preserved for over 2,000 years speaks life and health and breath and understanding to us today in 2014. I'm fascinated by that. If you're new today, every Pretty much every year, we'll go through one or two books of the Bible. And so instead of topical, although there are a lot of topics out of it that we'll pull, but we go through books of the Bible. And for the last number of weeks, we've been in the book of Acts. Not every verse, but a lot of the chapters and a lot of the context I want to share with you. In the next couple of weeks, there's just some great stuff that I think God wants to teach us out of 12 and 13. So uh, that'll give you the chance to read ahead. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate communion. I have a quote in your sermon notes this morning from Plato that says an unexamined life isn't worth living. Now, I certainly don't agree with everything that Plato says, but there's some merit to that, that uh, thought. That every once in a while, I need to stop and see how I'm doing. Now, one of the keys to leadership is to know yourself. And one of the things that, that I find that I want to do every once in a while is, how am I doing on my spiritual journey? I said to you a few weeks ago, I asked you to raise your hands. If you remember that moment when you accepted Christ as your Savior and you remember the joy of that, whether it was a month ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago, you remember the joy of that moment. And every once in a while, you ought to stop and say, how am I doing in this journey? I've known God for the last five years or the last 50 years, and man, I've seen God do some amazing things, and it's just so fun to see where I'm at in this journey, to see what I'm learning about God, what I'm learning about myself, what I'm learning about people. I find that now I'm sharing my faith a lot more. I really love being in the Word of God. I spend a lot of time praying. Now, there is a lot of us when I say, how are you doing in your spiritual journey? Well, you almost always say, well, not where I'd like to be. Now, who, you know, I'm way ahead of the game now. No, we always say, not where I'd like to be. Me and Jesus, boy, you couldn't tell us apart. You looked at us, you couldn't tell us apart. Nobody says that. But that really is the ultimate goal. We want to look like Christ. We want to imitate him in everything we do, how we respond to people, how we respond to God, how he responds to us, our connection with one another. Just a, a lot of good reasons for that. Next Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And near the end of that passage, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, look, every time you celebrate communion, you ought to do this. You ought to look inside before you eat the bread and drink the cup and just make sure that the channel between you and God is clear. You know Christ is your Savior. One of the requirements to take communion is to know Christ is your Savior, the only requirement. But there are times in our lives when stuff gets in the way and we want to stop every once in a while to say, oh, that's not what I want to do. I, I thought I'd be further along than this or I'm so delighted with where I'm at in my journey with God. I'm growing in my faith. I'm reading the Bible more regularly. Prayer is coming more consistently. I'm sharing my faith 
with others around me. I love being in this journey with God. Not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. And every so often, it's, it's good to stop and to say, how am I doing? And where am I at in my journey with God? A much more difficult to do is to do that as a church. How are we doing as a church? Are we an encouraging church or a discouraging church, which is the title here this morning, and out of the context of 11 and 15, but those are good questions that every once in a while we in leadership and those of us in the family of God ought to decide. When you come here and you're visiting us and you're kind of checking us out, what helped you make that decision as to whether or not you want to stay? How do I feel? How do I feel embraced? Do I feel loved? Do I feel received? Do I feel the life and wind of God blowing through this place or is it stiff like the church I just left? And as hard as it is to kind of look at ourselves as a whole church, it's really an important thing to do. One of my most enjoyable moments in time is in January when I get together with pastors from the large churches in the CNMA. There's about 25 or 28 churches I think that are our size in the CNMA and Every January, we kind of get together, about 14 or 15 of us, and share how we're doing, what God's teaching us, what we're learning about ourselves and one another, how we can best help each other grow. We kind of say what works and what didn't work. And, and we've often said, if somebody else is paying a dumb tax, why should we? If they tried it and it didn't work and it fell flat in its face, maybe it's something we ought not to consider. But maybe there's some great ideas. And over the last number of years, I've learned more from them than anything else I've ever been to. And so it's okay to kind of look at other churches. Now, one of the dangers of evaluating ourselves as other churches is either we'll get pride or de- proud or depressed, right? If I'm looking at my journey with God or looking at us as a church, we can go one or two extremes. We can get really proud about who we are and what we're doing. And I can get that way or I can get really depressed about where I'm at in my journey with God and what I'm doing. But it can be a benefit as well. This morning, I want to take two a look at the church in the New Testament in Acts 11 and 15 and kind of use that as a foundation for how we can best evaluate who we are and what we're doing in our journey with God. Now, we're at all different levels. There's some of us who are brand new in this church, brand new believers in Christ, and some of us who've been around for 40, 50 years. So it's kind of hard to do that as a church, but I want to look at these two churches and say, man, these are some great qualities that we would want to emulate. And there's some real dangers here that we would want to avoid. Now, we're in Acts 11 this morning, and Peter is doing what I said a moment ago. He's a missionary. He's serving God. Jesus gave him a command. Take this gospel. Let's change your life everywhere you go. Begin in Jerusalem, but take it eventually, ultimately around the world. Peter had to learn what that meant and what that looked like in chapter 10 to determine that it wasn't just people like him, people very different from him. And so he did that. Now he comes back to the church and say, wow, let me just tell you what God did. Every missionary has the opportunity to come back to a church, shares what God has been doing. You're not there. You're not with them. You're not over in their country, but you partnered with them. You've joined with them. You're supporting them and praying for them. And you'll hear that in a few weeks from Jim and Kathy. Peter's doing the same thing. The model that we still use, 2014, is the same model that's used here in Acts chapter 11. Peter goes back and he says, this is what God did. The apostles and the believers, Acts 11, verse 1. Throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, he wasn't well received. The circumcised believers criticized him. He said, you went to the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Does that ring a bell in your head? 
That was one of the things Jesus was criticized the most for, wasn't it? And one of the things that others who said you ought not to reach them, they're different, they're dirty, they're filthy, they're sinners, whatever. One of the things that they criticized Jesus for was not only going into their house, but you ate with them. Here they are having received the grace of God, understood the grace of God, recipients of the grace of God, still not changed. So Peter began to explain what happened. He told them the whole story, and it's a story that we shared with you last Sunday out of Acts chapter 10. Get down to verse 13. Cornelius, the one they ministered to, told us how he had seen an angel appear to him in his house and said, send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's going to bring a message to you through which you and your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, Peter said, as he did on us from the beginning. Then I remembered what Jesus said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in Jesus, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they celebrated. They had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, Wow, even Gentile, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Continues as others begin to hear about the same thing on verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution, that's out of Acts 8, broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spread the word among the Jews. Some of them, from Cyrus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, told them the good news about Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas and Antioch. Verse 23 is a really key verse, and you ought to underline a couple of words. When he arrived, he is in Barnabas, and saw the grace of God. It's an incredibly important statement. And saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Jesus said the same thing. Love God with every fiber of your being. Barnabas was a good man, full of the spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to Christ. And Barnabas went and took Saul with him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met together with the church, taught a great number of people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Last Sunday morning, Peter dealt with prejudice. This morning, legalism. Going to come up a number of times over the next number of chapters. Peter explains in verse 4 what goes on. In 18, it talks about their reception of that, and everything seems okay. We're thrilled. People different than us, not like us, from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicity, coming to faith in Christ. This is awesome. Until you come to chapter 15. And chapter 15 kind of clouds the rest of it. Turn there to just a few verses for me. Chapter 15, verse 1. It's kind of a cool sound, isn't it? People turning the Bible. That's cool. Uh, and if you have it on your iPad, it's awesome. Or iPhone, that's great. But it's just something about the word every once in a while. And hearing that is a wonderful reminder. In Acts 15, it says this. Certain people came down from Judea, 15th verse or first verse, I'm sorry. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. And this is what they said. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp debate <laughs> with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, among, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about that question. The church sent them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans were the ones that were rejected by the Jews to go up to Jerusalem he told how the Gentiles had been converted. That made them very glad, made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders 
to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And some of the believers who, along with the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, These Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, knowing that, that it's going to come up that way in chapter 15, clouds the fact that 11 says they rejoiced in these new believers who were very different from us coming to faith in Christ. From the, Jew of cha- or from the view of chapter 15 in your sermon notes, essentially saying this, grace isn't enough. You see, there's more to being saved than the grace of God. Some of the church are having a hard time with the fact that these people are getting the same grace they did. One of the most fascinating parables of Jesus was when the master of the vineyard sent out people and asked them to come into the labor and to, to do the harvest. And those who came at the end got the same pay as those at the beginning. And those at the beginning said, this isn't fair. Those of us who have been a believer a long time are seeing people from all walks of life and different backgrounds and different ethnicities and all kinds of diversity ought to be like those in chapter 11 saying, this is awesome. People that are different from us, from backgrounds that are different from us, that look different from us. It's amazing what God is doing. We're thrilled and want to celebrate that as opposed to putting restrictions on that, what you see here. Some of the church are having a hard time with the fact that these people are getting the same grace as they did. Even Peter's going to struggle with it. By the time you get to Galatians chapter 2 and Peter and Paul are there and Paul comes in. Peter is having a great time celebrating with these new believers in Christ, very different from the Jewish believers. And to all of a sudden, those from the Gentile or the Jerusalem church show up and Peter backs off. Some of the believers in Jerusalem didn't worry about the legalists. They just celebrated what God was doing. That used to happen in Jerusalem. But now they're concerned about who gets into the kingdom and protecting their little corner on God. When you go back to verse 3, the party of the, the circumcised believed that to become a Christian, you've got to become a Jew. They're struggling with some of the same things Peter did when God gave them the vision on the sheet. They had a hard time letting go of their old ways and letting go of the law. They seem to be saying this, Jesus is wonderful. Grace is great, but you've got to have more. Got to be circumcised, hence their name. But it goes much deeper than that. Today, many would say, Jesus is great, grace is wonderful, but if you're really a Christian, then you've got to believe like us. Join our church, do these things, and don't you dare do these things. And the list sometimes is pretty endless. I don't know if you've ever been to a church or been around someone and they make you feel like they're the only ones who know God. Or they've got a corner market on Christianity and it's an exclusive club. And unless you believe like them and saw everything their way, you didn't belong. It's not a new thing. Happened in the book of Acts. By the time you get to chapter 11, they're 12 years down the road from Pentecost. And then they had this note in your sermon notes, which would seem to indicate that the further away you get from God's incredible gift of grace, if you're not careful, the stuffier, more rigid and stiffer you can become. That's a really powerful line. There are a number of extremes that you can go to after you receive Christ as Savior. For some of us, when we remember that day, we still are filled with joy. I remember what it was like when you came to Jesus or when I came to Jesus and you share your story. God gave me amazing grace. He received me into his kingdom. All my sins were gone. You have no idea what I did. You have no idea how bad I was. You had no idea the stuff I was into. And then someone shared with me about Jesus. And I found out that I could have all of that wiped clean and I could start my life over again. And God gave me love and grace and family and friends and people to pray with me and encourage me and love me into the kingdom, help me in my journey with God. And on top of all of that, you tell me I get eternal life. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Thank you. 
Do you remember those days? A few weeks ago when I asked you, do you remember what it was like when you received Jesus as Savior? A lot of people raised your hand. And a lot of times, the further you are in your Christianity, the more enjoyable it becomes. And you're excited and you're thrilled and you can't wait to share it and you talk to people about it. But for some folks, the further away from Christianity or that moment when they accepted Christ as Savior, the further away from that moment, the more mediocre their relationship with God becomes. And there are some, the further away they are from God's amazing grace, the more restrictive they get. The stuffier they get, the, the more they find themselves not excited about who's coming into the kingdom and what God's doing. They get kind of stiff and rigid and exclusive, not wanting anybody in. What's interesting is through the years, I've had a lot of people say to me, why can't we be more like the church in the book of Acts? Have you ever heard that phrase? Are you sure that's what you want to be? I mean, they saw God do some amazing things and saw God pour himself out in powerful ways. But they also struggled for the next number of years all the way through Paul's ministry with legalism, a stuffy attitude that kind of keeps people rigid in a way from all the things that God was doing, that sucks the life out of a church. The kingdom of God's never going to die, but churches die every week. And one of the things that kills the life and joy in a church is legalism, that stuffy, stale focus on things that don't give life, that only rob us of joy, that moves us from this wonderful, intimate relationship with Christ to a performance. Remember how we began this journey in the book of Acts? They were thrilled with what God was doing. Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They broke bread with each other. Everyone was filled with awe. The believers had a lot in common. They encouraged one another. They helped each other out. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, praising God in favor of all the people. And God was adding to the church more and more every day. Move to Antioch and you see the same thing. Somewhere along the way, that Jerusalem church that God saw God do some amazing things seemed to have forgotten. You kind of want to get him down in a group and say, what happened? I mean, what happened when Jesus said to you, share this life and you did it everywhere you went and people came to faith in Christ and you were thrilled just to share life with each other. Now you want to be exclusive and you want to keep others down. And if they don't look like you, act like you, sound like you, you don't want them in. What happened? One of the answers Legalism, a sense of exclusiveness with the gospel, a sense of needing to control, a sense of pride. Reminds me of what can happen to churches when the breath and winds of God comes and moves in exciting ways. You know God is there. People are coming to Christ. Grace is everywhere. But somewhere along the line, grace leaves. And legalism creeps in and a life and winds of God are sucked right out of the place and all that's left is an empty shell. What I have found through the years is not new to me, but what I've found through the years is churches and denominations normally go through four or five cycles. They almost always start with a man or a woman on a mission from God. They have a message from God. They know God's hands upon them, and they really sense from Almighty God that they are to start a church or start a denomination. And they're excited about that, and they're so excited to get people around them, to join them on this journey. And it becomes more than just a person. It becomes a movement. They love what God's doing. They can't get enough of God. They want to share them everywhere they go. They're excited about the people that are coming to faith in Christ. 
And all of a sudden, this church of denomination gets pretty big and it needs some structure and they move from a, a movement to a machine. And that's okay because there needs to be some accountability. There needs to be some help. There needs to be an ability to operate effectively. But if not careful, it'll move so much into that machine mechanism where all we're doing is talking about ministry and not doing it. All we're doing is talking about our faith but not doing anything about it. All we're doing is talking about doing religion and have no life in it at all until somewhere along the way it moves from machine to a monument of days gone by. And all they need to do is put a stone out front, call us the first memorial church of something, and put it in a graveyard with days beside it. Now, if you came from the first memorial church of someone, I'm not saying your church is dead. But I've seen churches, I've seen denominations go through those cycles. One of the things the CMA is wrestling with is how do we retain our movement atmosphere? How do we retain our passion for the lost? How do we become so excited about what God's doing? We never want to move so much into a machine that all we do is talk about religion and talk about relationships and not do anything about it until eventually it dies and becomes a monument to days gone by. And if you've been in... The kingdom long enough, you remember those days or maybe you've seen those days when churches who have gone through that cycle have eventually died off and no longer exist. In the 70s, 1970s, how many of you remember that? Four of us, right? Six of us, that's awesome. It was a Jesus movement and people by the hundreds were coming to faith in Christ. They realized they needed to be connected to a family of God, not just isolated or insulated on their own. They wanted to become a part of the family of God. There were a lot of churches that didn't know what to do with them, didn't know what to do with us. A lot received them. Some encouraged them. Few ignored them. A lot rejected them. And some of those churches withered up and died. When the churches of England failed to reach the next generations, they literally died. And today are nothing more than a mosque and a museum. Now, you contrast that with Acts 11. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to God. When he arrived and saw the grace of God and what it had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to God with all their hearts. No gimmicks, no incredible programs. God's hands on them. That's it. That's enough. And they saw it, not just talked about grace. They literally saw grace. When you know that someone has been so saturated by the Spirit of God, they're in love with Jesus, it's obvious, right? It's evident. Coach McCartney coached the Colorado Buffaloes for years and went to a church one day and a preacher said to him this phrase that changed his life forever. He said, you can know what a man has invested into his wife by looking at the countenance on her face. You know what a man has invested into his wife by looking at the countenance on her face. When he looked at his wife, all he saw was an empty stare, and he knew that he poured his life and energy into the wrong things and not her. And he began what we know now as promise keepers. It's noticeable. You can see it. You can see when God's love and grace is all over a person. You can see when God's grace and love is all over a church. Grace gives life. This church and many churches like it were born in grace and need to continue in grace and exude that grace so that it's obvious to anybody who walks in, not that we're perfect by any means at all, but that people recognize this is the place with all my differences and all my stuff I can be received. And I can find Christ and I can grow in that relationship. And I can continue moving in that, knowing again that I'm not going to do it right. I'm not going to do it perfect. But I know this is a place where I can find grace. In Acts 15, James is going to respond to the issue. 
fascinating section of Scripture. I'm not sure exactly how we'll deal with it when we get there. But the believers come together. They talk about what all is going on. Everybody gives their opinions. And if you've ever been to any kind of church gathering or congregational meeting, there's usually not a shortage of opinions about what should be done. And then finally, James stands up and said, this is what we're doing. That's what I love about James, the leader in that. He said, okay, I hear all your, your ideas and issues, but I'm, this is what we're going to do. And, and then he begins to talk to them about receiving them into faith. And these are the things that they're to stay away from. Basically, they're answering this question. Do these new believers come to salvation by faith in Christ alone or their other requirements for salvation? And the answer is no. Salvation is a free gift based solely on our faith in Christ. And God who sees the heart in verse 8 evaluates that faith, cleanses the heart, wipes the slate clean, and allows us to start all over again. And we're born of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes in our hearts when we surrender ourselves completely to Him. And God fills us with His Spirit. And that Spirit gives me life, joy, peace. And it exudes. It's evident others see it. Now, out of that, Paul's going to ask one of the most powerful questions in all the New Testament. In light of what I now know, the salvation is a free gift. And I don't have to do anything to earn it. I surrender myself to Christ, and he comes into my life. And from that point on, I live my life for him. Now that I know that, do I continue to take advantage of God's grace and continue to sin? And the answer is absolutely not. And that's where the rub comes in at times between those statements. Fully understanding that I can receive salvation through the ultimate grace of God. And knowing that when I come to him, as, as uh, <coughs> the New Testament says in John, <coughs> excuse me, 1 John, where I can come and confess my sins and know that he's faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Where many wrestle with is, okay, now that I'm a believer in Christ and I know that it's faith in him alone. There's things in my life that I now don't have to get rid of, is there? And Paul would say, yeah, there are. Not that you earn salvation, not that you get salvation because of it. But there are things in your life now that you just don't do because you're a follower of Christ and you really understand grace. And there are things in my life that I just want to get rid of. Not in an effort to gain Christianity and not in an effort to find Christ, but in an effort to show and demonstrate the love that I have for him and other people. In verse 31 of those chapters, they're thrilled with what God has done. Even when James puts some restrictions on them, they're thrilled with that because they know in Christ there are things that I do and I don't do not because I earn salvation, but because I understand God's grace and the impact it is to have on other people. Three things in your note that change in our relationship with the law in regards to our relationship with Christ. In Christ, I no longer keep the law to understand faith. My performance isn't what gains it. The law has no power to condemn me or shame me. But now, number three, instead of being motivated by fear that God's going to kick me out of his kingdom or I won't make it, I'm motivated by love. The love of Christ constrains me, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to do certain things and not other things. And because of that life, or that because of that love, words like abstain don't scare me. Because of my love for Christ and my desire to be like him and knowing that one of his basic characteristics is holiness, I want to be holy. I want to live this Christian life as he would expect me to. In Ezekiel 36, I've given you a new heart. I've put a new spirit in you. I'll remove that old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And now when I put my spirit in you, it'll move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Why? Because of love. 
Not because I earn salvation, but because of the love of Christ. If I'm a born-again believer in Jesus and I allow my life to be controlled by his spirit, then I have a responsibility to seek his guidance and listen to his leading about certain areas of my life. Things that I should do or shouldn't do, not to gain salvation, but to please him and to honor him and to show and demonstrate love to the people around me. Galatians 5, you're called to freedom, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to continue to sin, knowing you're going to get God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, everything is okay, but not everything is beneficial. 1 Corinthians 8 tells me to be careful with my freedom to not cause my brother to stumble. When grace is evident in a person's life, it's visible and it's obvious. And those of us who are followers of Christ determined that there are things in my life that because of Jesus I will not do because of my relationship with him and the love that I have for his people and my awareness that I don't want to lose my freedom as a stumbling block to other people and awareness of what's going on around me. I live this way, not in effort to gain salvation or gain anything from him, but in an effort to please him and to demonstrate love with the people around me. Because of love, I keep the law. Because of my love for Christ, I don't bear false witness. Not because it'll get me into heaven or God will be pleased with me. Why would I want to tear people down if I'm really demonstrating love? I don't lie. I don't want to lie. I don't want to do that. Not because it's an effort to keep the law and I can check off one of the commandments, but because of love, I want to tell the truth. Because of my relationship with Jesus, I want to tell the truth. Because of my love for him and my love for the, my wife, there are things that I don't watch and things that I don't do. Because, not because it's going to get me salvation or God will look okay with me today and I can check today off saying I was a good boy. Because of my love for him and love for her. Things in my life that I, I don't do alcohol at all. Because it's the one, thing, one of the things in my life that I don't, I, I, I don't want to allow it to get down any train or any track. And it's one of the things that God said, don't do this because there's a lot of people watching your life. There's a lot of things I don't do because I know there's a lot of people watching my life, not in an effort to gain salvation, but in an effort to demonstrate the love of God. And there are things in your life I've got to believe that the Spirit of God has been saying to you, you need to get rid of that. A lot of attitudes, a lot of things that you're doing that really aren't demonstrating that the love of Christ is so radiating out of your life that it's obvious and evident. Man, the way you respond to people the stuff that comes out of you, and you know as well as I do that sometimes in the midst of a heated moment, stuff comes out. It isn't a visible demonstration of the love that you say you have for Christ, not in an effort to gain salvation, but in an effort to demonstrate that the Spirit of God is controlling my life and my actions and my attitudes and the things that I do and the things that I don't do. And so every once in a while, it's a really good discipline to stop in my personal journey with God, as we'll do next Sunday in communion and maybe a lot of other times, and say, God, how am I doing? Am I, am I moving in this continuum? Am I deepening my walk with you? Is it getting better? Or do I find myself drifting away? Is my Christianity becoming kind of mediocre or even stale and stuffy? And I find myself just not even liking people anymore, let alone those that are different than us. I mean, I wouldn't say that you ate with them, but in my head, those things come out. And when I see them walking in the door, I don't welcome them as I should. I don't love them like Jesus does. And I don't even talk to them. And as a church, how are we doing? 
Are we a church that extends grace? And it's like Antioch, we're thrilled with what God is doing. We're like those in Jerusalem who somehow must have forgotten what God's grace looked like and kind of keep it like an exclusive club that only those who look and act and think like us get in. Very hard to do as a church. I get it. But if you're trying to decide on a church that you are a part of, I'd choose the one in Antioch. May God help us to be that. Father, we love your word. It is really, really powerful. And so I pray that you help us to understand who we are in you and never, ever, ever forget your amazing grace. And that it's obvious and evident in the way we treat people, the way we respond, the way we live our lives, the things we do and the things we don't do. And so, Spirit of the living God, I trust that as you always have freedom, speak to us, help us like Jesus said to the churches in Revelation. He spoke to churches. Help us to be sensitive to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. Whether it be personally or as a church. 